Hello on Scriptures. This is Matt Lynch, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode where we explore new and noteworthy biblical scholarship. Thank you for the helpful feedback you've given over the last few weeks and for all the love and support and care and compassion. Uh, We are enormously grateful. Matt and I have been busy recording a few really good episodes here, and I just wanted to remind you or encourage you to not only ingest good theology, but also to read the books that we're discussing, because the conversations only scratch the surface. So often there are huge swaths of the book where I get done the interview and think, oh, we didn't even talk about that, didn't touch on it, or we could barely get into it. So, you know, it's like the comparison between watching the trailer for a movie and actually reading the book that that movie was based on. So you could uh, even start a theology group where every two to three weeks you pick a book that we've covered and read it as a group. I bet that would stimulate some good discussion. And if you click through the link we provide on the site, we get a 1% to 2% kickback. Yes, a 1% to 2% kickback. And if a bunch of you pile on and do that, Matt and I might be able to afford a cup of coffee at a real cafe. And uh, you see, Matt and I, Matt and I uh, drink instant coffee, and sometimes we even reuse our tea bags just so we can afford to bring you this podcast. And. I doubt Matt would want me to say this, but he's been wearing the same shirt to work for the past year just so he can cut back on his clothing budget to be able to afford the microphone to record his podcast on. So, you know, I might be exaggerating a little bit there, but uh, my point is that uh, we would love if if some of you could click through the link and if you buy the book, that would be helpful in helping us keep this running. And uh, keep the reviews coming on iTunes. Those of you who have, I appreciate that. It means the world to us. And please know that you are deeply, deeply loved. And uh, especially those who write positive reviews. If you write a negative review, well, you know, we can talk about that. In, in this episode, I speak with Nisha Jr., who discusses womanist biblical interpretation and her new book on that subject. And let me just say that this is a topic I didn't know much about. I know, that's a total shock. You all thought I was probably an expert in African-American womanist uh, biblical interpretation. I can't even say it right. So it's, uh, But I think it's a really important area of biblical studies that's increasing in prominence and uh, very timely as well. And nice just paving the way in that field. And I think... We're going to begin to see more scholarship in that area, and it's going to be worth paying attention to and learning from, even if it's not our comfort zone. And this is one of those books for me. So let's follow her down that road for a while and see where it leads and 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 be willing to be challenged. So, all right, without further ado, here we go. Welcome to the OnScript Podcast. Our guest today is Nisha Jr., who is a scholar, blogger, and avid Twitterer, and who is assistant professor of Hebrew Bible at Temple University in Philly. 
and the author of An Introduction to Womanist Biblical Interpretation, published by Westminster John Knox in 2015. Naisha, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, on your on your website, uh, NaishaJunior.com, that's N-Y-A-S-H-A-Junior.com, for those uh, who are wanting to look that up, your, your bio says that your, quote, love for biblical texts started in church. Bored with dry, unimaginative sermons, you grabbed the Bible and started to develop a passion for its intriguing and juicy stories. Could you share just a little more of your background and that process of becoming drawn into the Bible as a major part of your life? Sure. I grew up in Greater Bethlehem AME Church. AME is African Methodist Episcopal. Um, it was a small country family church in the South, and I was a reader and terribly bored most of the time in church. And uh, the Bible was the only book they would let me read in church. So that's where I started to develop my love for the stories that were in the Bible. Um, it didn't become for me a professional interest until much, much later. My undergrad degree was in international relations. Um, and then I did graduate work in public policy and worked in a regular, ordinary job and wanted to know if there was more. What else was I going to do with my life? My long story short, my grandmother died and it caused a whole quarter life crisis. And I decided that I would go to seminary. And then in seminary, my first class was an introduction to Old Testament with Jeffrey Kwan. And that did it. Then I knew that's what I wanted to do. Now, you said you grew up in the South. Where, where did you grow up? The church was in Milton, Florida. I grew up in Pensacola, which is nearby. But my okay. grandmother and the church were about half an hour away. Okay. And so as reader in the church, like, are you referring to like a reader, uh, specific reader role in the church, or you just mean you were reading in the church? No, I mean, I just love to read, except I wasn't allowed to read in church, uh -huh. except for the Bible. So yeah. that's what happened. And the hymnal, right? Yes. Okay. That, <laughs> yeah, that I, was it. I used to sit in church and um, I was really encouraged to take notes on sermons. Did you did you grow up doing that? Was that a thing in your church? No, people were not taking notes. I mean, I I could have preached the sermon. So a lot of times <laughs> the sermons were repeats. Yeah. And I knew what he was going to say before he said it. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it, they were not terribly exciting or interesting <laughs> and were uh women encouraged to or allowed to preach in, in your church tradition growing up it kind of changed over time mm -hmm. so initially i don't remember seeing women ordained but over time they had more of a role and then i think by the time i went to college women were being ordained okay um but we understood that women were in charge of the church, really. Huh. And um, since we were AME, the pastors would come and go. Huh. So the pastor wasn't, in fact, that important. Okay. Um, but we knew who really ran things. <laughs> and, and was your grandmother one of those people who, who ran the church? 
Yes, indeed, okay. she was. Um, her name was Willa May Ewing, and she was one of those who made sure that what needed to happen happened, mm-hmm. um, although not in an official capacity usually. Yeah, and, and did you did you kind of grow up um, with with uh, your grandmother Willa May's um, stories playing a, a role in your life? Would you say? I don't know so much stories, but mm-hmm. she was an important figure. Yeah. She had 11 children. Hmm. And so I had a gazillion aunts and uncles and cousins. And um, I understood that she ran the family. Yeah. Um, and I remember she cooked all the time. I, that's how I knew she was really ill at the end of her life because when I came into the house visiting home from college, she was sitting down and I'd never, I don't think I'd ever seen her sit down except maybe in church because she was always up and busy and doing and something. Um, And so that's when I knew, Oh, she's really, really sick. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting because I I grew up with my, my grandmother played a big role in my life because with the, they grew up attached to our, our house. My, my grandparents had an apartment. Um, and so I think mm-hmm. in a similar way, I just have this, this image in my mind of my grandmother cooking nonstop and I could always go over there and just eat. Right. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and so then I bring friends home from college and, you know, that tradition continued. So, um, so what were some of the, what were some of the the factors in your life that led you to dis- pursue biblical studies as a career? You mentioned deciding to go to seminary, and what was it about that Hebrew Bible class or introduction to the Old Testament that really drew you in? Well, I went to seminary not knowing quite what I was doing there, mm-hmm. but wanting to study religion in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. But also knowing that I really was not cut out to be anyone's pastor. Mm. So I went hoping that I would find some sort of way out. (laughs) And uh, Jeffrey Kwan's class was it for me. I just, Mm. I didn't realize somehow, I mean, I knew people studied theology and religion, but I didn't realize that you could specialize in just biblical studies. Mm. So once I saw his example of that, I said, Oh, that's what I want to do. And I went to him in office hours and said, I want your job. What do I have to do? And amazingly, he didn't laugh or kick me out or anything and um, just agreed to become my advisor and helped me to prepare myself through the MDiv for doctoral work. Mm-hmm. And, and who, who are some of the other um, biblical scholars that played a played a similar role in your journey toward becoming um, a a professional scholar? Um, I would say other scholars who were important in my development um, would be Marianne Tolbert. I had her for New Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, Bob Coote tortured me in Hebrew. (laughs) And uh, Vincent Wimbush. Mm was also an, an important influence. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so then as you, uh, so you went to Princeton for your, to do your doctoral work, right? Princeton Seminary, yes. Yeah, Princeton Seminary. And uh, so what were the 
uh, events in your life that led you to then decide to write your introduction to womanist biblical interpretation? Well, after the dissertation was over and done with and signed and edited and turned in, um, I really thought, I thought about, do I want to revise the dissertation and made a few stabs at that, but I wasn't really interested in going back to revisit it. So I thought about what, what is the book I actually would want to write? What is something that would be helpful and useful that I really wanted to do? And that led me to this project. And I explained in the intro that really it's because I didn't have a book like this for my own studies in graduate school that I wanted to write a book that would be useful for people who didn't know where to begin in thinking about womanist approaches in Mm -hmm. biblical studies. Yeah. It's interesting, um, you know, as I was reading your book and reflecting on where I first heard the term womanist biblical interpretation, I, I thought of um, the there was this book called After the Collapse of History by Leo Perdue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had read that, I can't remember when, I think it was during my grad studies when I was, I was at Regent College in Vancouver. You know, it was a book that kind of covered a gazillion approaches to the Bible, and so from in my mind it kind of got lost in the mix and and uh and and I was was left after that kind of wondering what is womanism and is that just another way of saying feminism is just is this some term I it's got some particular nuance to feminism so but I think that for a lot of people I'm sure if they hear the term womanism they're going to make a, a direct link with feminism or think that they're nearly synonymous so now, that's not at all the case. Could you just unpack for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term what what exactly womanism means? It's a tough question, but I, I would say the best place to start is Alice Walker. Um, she gives the primary definition of the term in her book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. Uh, it's a 1983 collection of essays, and she has a four-part definition of the term womanist in the front matter of the book. Um, The definition is really worth reading. It's printed in full in my book, but the definition most people are probably familiar with is the one at the end, number four, in which she says, womanist is to feminist as purple to lavender. So um, that, along with the first part of the definition, womanist as a black feminist or feminist of color, become popularly the way that the term womanist is understood. But again, it is a lengthy definition, and people use the term in lots of different ways, um, but usually they pick and choose from Walker's 1983 definition. Yeah, so so one of the things that that you seem to be up to in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is uh, an attempt to to say that womanism isn't just a, a, a subspecies of feminism, right? And yes. So, so how? What are some of the ways that you distinguish the two, and and feel that it doesn't just belong under that larger umbrella? Well, part of what I try to explain in the book is that. When we think about feminism, 
it's usually understood as white women's activism. And then womanism, by analogy, becomes, well, that must be something that black women are doing related to what white women are doing. So um, womanism is, for some people, part of black feminism, and for others is a completely separate term. Long story short, I would say that womanism tries to pay attention not only to issues of gender, but to the intersections of gender, race, class, and other factors. So there's um, Kimberly Crenshaw uses the term intersectionality in her work, and people might have heard that uh, term more frequently than even the term womanist in some circles. But the idea is that... um, it's not just gender as a factor, but gender, race, and class especially are overlapping and intersecting factors. Um, but how people choose to use feminist or womanist or black feminist approaches in their work differs in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So one of the ideas connected with intersectionality that was really, really illuminating to me as I read your book was the idea of the, the the concept of double and triple jeopardy, uh, and and then another term that you threw in was the idea of the multiplicative effect of different forms of oppression. So could you unpack a little bit uh, for for our listeners, like what how that works, and and maybe why that's a distinctive of, of womanist approaches to the Bible. I wouldn't say womanist approaches to the Bible. I would say womanist thought in general. Um, so a lot of feminist work pays attention, especially to gender. Although there is feminist work that does move beyond just gender as a single uh, point of analysis. But some womanist approaches, that approach might include looking at multiple categories. So um, in Kimberly Crenshaw's work, she's a legal scholar. She talks about a case in which um, there was a gender discrimination case against a company and also a racial discrimination case. And the court system was asking black women to pick a side. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, you you could be part of the gender discrimination case or the racial discrimination case, but we don't really understand these sort of combo units of people who have race and gender. We don't we're we're not set up for that. And so her work talks about how racism and sexism and classism work together; that they're not individual separate things happening, um, but they happen to people simultaneously. And so that leads to this concept of double jeopardy and the notion of intersectionality. Yeah. And and one of your points then tied to that was that it's not just the additive effect of those oppressions, but it's it, it's a compounding effect that that um that oppressions don't work in a one plus one, but it's more a, a multiplication uh as you add another form of oppression. Um that someone would experience. Is that, is that correct? Is that fair? Yes. So yeah. they, they all work together mm-hmm. simultaneously yeah. and you can't separate one from another. 
kind of related to that, maybe just a more personal question. Would, um, as you were working on this book and thinking through uh, womanist thought and eventually biblical interpretation, to what extent would you say that you were resonating experientially with a lot of what you're reading? Well, I'm a black woman. It's a book about black women. So there were certainly some aspects of the book that resonated with me. And I understand um, experientially what intersectionality means. Um, but the, the purpose of the book really was to try to lay out some of the definitions, some of the issues, some of the things related to what womanist approaches in biblical studies currently look like and where yeah. we might be going. Yeah. So it's, um, yes, I would say some of it I did resonate with. And then it, it's not a like personal journey. Sure. It's not a memoir, but there were elements of it that yeah. uh, I understood personally. Yes. Yeah, and I, I guess part of what I was thinking um, with that question was, um, in your book you said, I think both in the beginning and, and toward the end of the book, that you don't personally identify as a, a womanist scholar. So, so what are some of your reasons for resisting that label for yourself or for your scholarship? Mm, yes, so people seem to be surprised by by this. Um I see no reason why I should be a womanist. Um, I don't feel that it captures me as an individual. And I was attempting to write a book to lay out issues related to the use of this term in biblical studies. But I'm, it's not for me a personal identification. Um, but even as I say that, and I mention in the book, um, I recognize that once you create something, then it's out of your hands. So it will in part be up to other people to decide if, regardless what, of what I say, if they consider the book itself to be a mm. womanist work. Right. Um, even if I don't use that term. Sure. Yeah, and you gave a you gave a little story on in your conclusion about you know, you were interviewing for a. a position in Hebrew Bible. He said one committee member had arrived late to the meeting and at a pause in the conversation asked, aren't you a womanist? Yes. You know, I guess there's maybe an assumption that, well, if as a black woman doing scholarship, you must be. Right. Um, so, all of you. Yeah. <laughs> all of you look alike and all of you must be doing the same right. sort of work. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's part of why I wrote the book to try to dispel some of those myths. Yeah. Um, and, and I think in some ways there are some well-intentioned people mm -hmm. maybe find out about this term or, or other terms and think um, they're trying to be sensitive, but mm -hmm. they are making assumptions that people wouldn't make mm -hmm. with other scholars. Right. I think usually when we see people at SBL, um, the Society of Biblical Literature, you usually ask people, what do you do? What's your work on? We don't make assumptions just because you're a white guy in chinos and a blue blazer. 
we don't assume that you do a particular type of scholarship. So likewise, if you see a black woman, it's okay to ask her what she does and not assume that she does a particular type of scholarship. Do, do, do you find a lot of people make that assumption with you at, at SBL and other kind of academic meetings? Um, they better stop <laughs> after I spend all this time writing this book. Yeah. Uh, I hope that there is less of that. Um, but I think now what has happened is because I wrote this book, people do identify me now as a womanist biblical scholar because I wrote about womanist biblical scholarship. But that just means that clearly they haven't read the book yet. Going back to the definition of womanism for a moment, uh, there is, at least according to Alice Walker, who you quote in different places in the book, a kind of spirit or tone to womanism as well. And so I'd just like to read from a section of, of Walker's In Search of Our Mother's Gardens that you quote in your introduction. Um, so this is Walker speaking here. I just like to have words to explain things correctly. Now, to me, black feminist does not do that. I need a word that is organic, that really comes out of the culture, that really expresses the spirit that we see in black women. And it's just womanish. You know, the posture with the hand on the hip. Honey, don't you get in my way. And then she defines the... Um, the term as uh, traditionally capable, as in, Mama, I'm going to Canada, and I'm taking you and a bunch of other slaves with me. And then the reply from the Mama was, it wouldn't be the first time. So the daughter's plan for a group escape from slavery is met not with surprise, but with an unimpressed acceptance by her mother. And then, uh, Nisha, you write, you write, the African-American mother does not bat an eyelash when confronted with her daughter's audacious plan because the mother expects such bravery and competence. So I, I thought that was a, a helpful quote for getting into the, the spirit of womanism. And I was just wondering if, if it's fair to say that that expectation or assumption of bravery and audaciousness in the, in the very best sense of, of the term captures womanism well, in your opinion? It's tough to say. So one of the things that I point out in the book is that a lot of the work and womanist thought in AAR SBL circles has been done on the AAR side. Hmm. So if we're talking about biblical studies, they, we have fewer African-American women scholars and um, only a subset of those use and identify, use womanist approaches and perhaps identify themselves mm -hmm. as womanist scholars. So what happens is that people use the term in very, very different ways in their work. So part of what I argue is that at this point, there is not a consensus position on what a womanist approach looks like within biblical studies. Yeah. So part of, part of what it includes is some nod to Walker. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, Walker's definition is fairly extensive. And so people usually pick a section of Walker that they like and say, well, I'm using Walker in this sense. 
Um, and then there's usually some engagement with the lived experiences of African-American women. But part of what I point out is that, unfortunately, many times that devolves into gross generalizations about black women. So at this point, we don't have a large body of work from which to make generalizations about what womanist approaches within biblical studies look like. So far, a lot of it is the scholar herself is an African-American woman. There's some mention of Walker, some mention of African-Americans, women's experiences. Mm. Um, But we don't have a large pool to draw from to be able to clearly articulate, oh, these, these are elements or these are the steps or however you want to think about it. This is what we usually see in an approach in biblical studies. Yeah, and that that was another thing I I, I picked up in your book. Um, were kind of like two related frustrations on your part, if I if I'm reading you accurately, with womanist biblical interpretation. And it seemed like one of them was that there's not there's a tendency maybe to act like there's a whole burgeoning field of womanist biblical interpretation, when in reality there's actually not a lot that's been done. And, and then the other frustration probably connected to that was that there's not more kind of exegetically focused womanist biblical interpretation. I think there, there are two important issues in the development of womanist approaches in biblical studies. Mm -hmm. So yes, uh, part of what I point out in the book is that, um, a certain scholar may make make sweeping statements about womanism in biblical studies without anything to back it up. Mm-hmm. So making statements like, well, womanism in biblical studies, but not having footnotes to support that statement yeah. uh, or not having particular scholars or pointing out particular scholars, but not acknowledging that those are perhaps the only examples, right. not two or three examples out of the 50 examples that might be possible. Right. So this is why in the book I try to explain that feminist approaches within biblical studies are often linked with womanist approaches in biblical, in biblical studies. So meaning that in some conversations someone will say feminist and womanist, fill in the blank, or feminist slash womanist, blah, blah, blah. And part of what I wanted to point out is that we have 50 years worth of scholarship from um, biblical scholars who are doing something that we recognize as feminist approaches. They do it in lots of different ways, but we have enough material that you have a general sense about if someone's doing a feminist approach, what are some of the elements that you might expect to see? Right. We don't have the same body of work in womanist approaches. And so when someone says feminist and womanist, the problem is that those are not even apples and oranges. They're Mm. just totally different things at this point. And putting them together makes it sound as if 
they've had a parallel history and development. Right. Yeah, and and, I, and you point out that a lot of people keep appealing back to Renita, uh, is it Weems or Weems? Yes. Weems. Weems mm-hmm. book, and as if that again is representative of this whole body of literature, when in fact that's one of the one of the few. <laughs> so, yes. So uh, Weems, uh, one of her more famous books is Just a Sister Away. Uh, which she herself acknowledges is a book for laypersons. Um, it was not intended to be her scholarly magnum opus, but this is often the point at which people begin to talk about womanist biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. So part of what I was trying to do in the book is to offer uh, a longer view of African-American women reading biblical texts, how some of them use understandings of womanism, Mm. um, but how specifically womanist biblical approaches at this point are not parallel to what we have within feminist biblical approaches. Yeah. Yeah. And when I went back to Leo Perdue's book to see what, to see how he handled that particular issue, sure enough, he, he referred to Renita Weems book, but as, as, the, at least the impression I got was that this is kind of one case case uh, in point of a larger body of literature. Um, do do you see your work then as as hopefully sparking some more uh, specifically exegetically focused uh, womanist biblical interpretation, or what kind of scholarship would you love to see more of? I don't know. I'm I I hadn't really thought that I would my work would lead to any sparks as much as I was hoping it was going to help the poor MDiv who really wanted to do some sort of, some sort of exegesis paper. And uh, her professor just had nowhere to begin and didn't know uh, what to assign. So uh, I was really thinking more of graduate students than other scholars, but I, I will say at this point already, since my book has come out, um, Stephanie Crowder has a book on womanist approaches when mama speaks um, that has come out and uh, Mitzi Smith's work that had just come out as I was finishing this um, is also an edited volume that looks at different types of womanist approaches. So it, it may be that we see more scholarship um, that is more exegetically focused. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if people will continue to use this term or move on to other terms. Um, and part of what I mentioned in the book is that there are a lot of different directions where womanist approaches within biblical studies could go. But part of the issue is that if the term is only for African-American women, it will be necessarily limited because we don't have a lot of African-American women in biblical studies or black women who are part of the African diaspora even. So I don't know. I don't know what the future will hold. Let's talk about some specific texts. What would you say historically have been some of the most challenging and contested texts for African American women? And and then what are some of the strategies, not necessarily just within 
scholarship per se, um, but more broadly within African American women writers. Uh, what kind of strategies have emerged for um, wrestling with some of those challenging or important texts? It's tough to say because, again, we're, we don't have a whole lot of data to work with. So um, I think a, a lot of the uh, New Testament texts on relationships, the household, all of that, um, for many African-American Christian women, those have been troubling texts. Right. Um, but I would say, I think for many Christian women, period, um, those have been texts that people have struggled with on the roles of women, uh, women in relationships and women in leadership positions or positions of authority. Um, the trouble with thinking through how have people dealt with some of those texts is we have women who are part of the guild and then women who aren't. So one of the things that happens, I think, for people who are outside of the guild is whatever the church or the denomination or that community decides becomes the prevailing interpretation. Um, so let women keep silence in the church. It depends on where you are, how that's understood. Um, I think that uh, there's a famous story um, that I mention in the book of uh, the grandmother of Howard Thurman, who simply rejects um, Paul's texts on slavery, just won't read them, won't have someone read them to her because she's unable to read. Um, so I think what I found when I am talking with women about these texts is that people want to have more conversation and dialogue, um, but may feel that within their particular communities that that's not permitted, that there's an official stance about the church or the denomination or the community's understanding about texts and not a lot of room for understanding different interpretations or different ways to talk about these texts. Mm. What are some resources that you would point women toward uh, in, in wrestling with some of those problematic passages in Paul and in other, other places and specifically in the new Testament, but also in the old Testament. Well, I would say men and women um, should struggle a bit more. I, I always recommend the women's Bible commentary. It's a one volume um, set that deals with, it just goes book by book and outline some of the issues related to gender specifically and female characters. So uh, the Women's Bible Commentary, edited by Carol Newsom and others, that's usually a place where I, I suggest people begin um, because it's all together in one volume. Right. It probably won't come as a shock to you, but before reading your book, the only exposure that I'd had to Wona's approaches to biblical interpretation was mediated through a white man in Leo Perdue's After the Collapse of History. But my question is, what would be your plea toward white men like myself who are in biblical scholarship or are interpreters of the Bible in terms of the way that we go about doing uh, the work that we do? 
I think I would say that um, I would like to see more scholars acknowledge that their work is not objective. I think that um, one of the one of the gifts we see from feminist scholarship has been an acknowledgement of one's social location, of one's agenda, of one's concerns, of one's reading interests. And I'd love to see more scholars acknowledge where they're coming from. Um, how who they are affects the types of questions that they ask Mm. rather than that being usually something we see from someone who's offering a a contextual approach. I I think that's, you know, even the language I used when I talked about perspectival approaches versus, I guess, presumably non-perspectival there, there, there can be an assumption that there, (laughs) there are types of criticism that, allow a bias in and then there are types that don't but i think really the divide is probably between self-consciously perspectival and and unconsciously so one of the other things that that struck me and we've touched on this already was that you know i got to the end of the book and i thought well this has just barely begun like and and <laughs> it, not in the sense that you haven't given an introduction but that the field of womanist biblical interpretation is just wide open. You're giving a report from the from the front. Uh, I know you say you don't know where it's going to go, but where where do you see the most need for work? I I don't know. I'm I'm open here. I I'm I'm hopeful that what we'll see is people being more careful with their terminology. I'm hoping that we'll see people um beginning to define and clarify specifically how they're using womanist. Um, I hope that people, even if they're not, will be more cautious in what they identify and label as womanist. Um, And I will say, I I think people are interested in seeing what happens. Um, So I get, I'm always on Twitter, so I get questions about, well, can you point me to a womanist work on Joshua or a womanist work on Esther or those types of things. And unfortunately we don't have, as I've been saying, lots of volumes of womanist work at this point. So whereas I could find a number of different things on a particular book or on a particular passage from feminist scholars um, at this point, we don't have the same volume of material from womanist scholars. So there isn't an equivalent women's Bible commentary using womanist approaches or something similar at, at this point anyway. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know what will happen. I don't know if um, people will do something that involves uh, the influence of black feminist and womanist work, but they call it something else. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned in the book is the possibility that people will start using intersectional. I've seen that a lot, especially with younger people identifying themselves even as intersectional feminist. Um, so I don't know if that will become the term, the preferred term over womanist. I don't know if some people will choose to use black feminist or possibly make use of this work, but without identifying it as womanist. 
So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that my book will be useful to people in thinking about some of these things, but I don't really know where we're going to go with it. One of the, um, one of the questions we ask in this podcast, not necessarily related to your book, it's our traditional question, which means we've done it three times now. What would you say is an idea or, you know, predominant thesis position that needs to die? I would, I would say not, for me, not a thesis, but a, a thing that needs to die in the field of biblical studies is sexual harassment. Talk about that a little bit more. Um, in in gatherings of women at the women's breakfast, at the women's student orientation, um, there is always some conversation about this issue, either on the agenda or privately among participants. Um, and there is a, a movement afoot to develop something similar to astronomy allies, uh, which is a group within uh, the astronomy field where there are people who um, identify themselves as someone that you can go to if you have been sexually harassed or, or want to report something outside of the, the normal channels um, to talk about what your options are and to gain some support and then to think through your decision making. Um, so it it's not... It's something that I think affects us professionally, even if it's not a particular thesis. Um, and I think that there have been too many people for too long who have been um, predators. And unfortunately, some of us know those people um, and they've been allowed to continue their behavior. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we will um, see less of that and that... Um, this group and others as they are, are developing will be an important resource for people who have suffered too long in this field. And, and is that something that's um, going to be possibly formed within SBL? Is that where you're talking about um, that developing or more broadly across the academy? Uh, I have only been approached about the group and I'm not sure where they are in terms of uh, going public at this point. Um, but I will just say that people um, acknowledge that it's an issue within biblical studies specifically, but also within the academy. Um, but there are some people who are working on providing an alternative for folks who want to come forward. And, and I, I realize that for some people, this may seem like it's out of left field. Um, they may never have heard of these instances. Um, they may not personally know someone that this has happened to. But I would venture to say it's probably the case that they do know someone and that person has just not told them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But unfortunately among women, it's something that's usually sort of an underground railroad of information about watch out for this person or I heard about this person um, or be careful in these circumstances. Um, that's even gone to certain people saying, I won't send my students to X school right. because of this particular person. Um, 
So again, I, I realize that for some people they may not be aware, but for others it's something that affects them and their careers and their experiences at SBL. Yeah. Well, um, let's, uh, hope that really goes forward. So, um, thanks for your work in that. And, uh, thanks again for the excellent book you've written and, uh, what's next for you, by the way, in your, in your research, um, I mean, you're allowed to you're allowed to just celebrate for a while for a couple of years after your book, but I'm just curious where you're going next. Um, yes, it would be nice to just celebrate for a while, but uh, that's not how the game goes. So I'm working on a project on Hagar for Oxford University Press. So that's my next project, and then um, alongside that, I'm working on a project on Samson. Okay, so uh, Samson meets Hagar. Yeah, they're they're not going they're not going to get together. Oh, but. okay. This is obviously a, a, a fictional novel you're writing. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> uh, the Hagar Project is a reception history looking at how, over time, Hagar in some communities comes to be understood as black. So, how and where and when does she transform into a black woman? Not She's mentioned as Egyptian within the text, but in under what circumstances does she become identified as a black woman? And then the Samson Project, also dealing with uh, race, looks at how Samson um, is looked at by intellectuals, writers, um, as a figure to be understood as a type of black Samson. Um so it's in some ways kind of related to the Hagar project, but with more of a focus um, on how he's understood within different communities. Um, and the Hagar is a little bit more focused on just her individually as a character. Yeah. Well, those both sound like fascinating projects. So we look forward to uh, seeing where you go with us. Me too. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with us at OnScript and uh, enjoy your, your the celebration of your work now. It's I know it's been a year, but um really appreciated the book. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to on Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.